Equipping today's college students to make their four years count for eternity. This is the Campus Outreach Podcast. Here's what we're going to do this morning. We're, we're going to connect what we talked about last night uh, to this morning because, you know, we talked about prayer, this idea that we are called. It's the will of God that we pray without ceasing. In a sense, we start to form an existence of unending, consistent communion with God. And what you might be tempted to think is, well, is this just all about me? You know, is this a therapeutic gospel? Is this just God being my counselor and he exists so that I can experience inner peace and harmony, uh, you know, in my mind and in my heart? And here's what's really interesting, just to connect what we were talking about last night to this morning. Um, When you see the fruit of Daniel's life, and in particular the fruit uh, of Daniel's commitment to pray without ceasing, here's what you see. Daniel lived in exile, serving a pagan king for 70 years. And his life was marked by integrity. He never compromised his character. So remember how we talked about last night, especially in America, we are moving towards more secular culture. If we're going to walk with God for a lifetime, if we're going to endure, if we're going to persevere and be an example of what a transformed life looks like, we've got to meet with Jesus each and every day. But here's what we start to see is the gospel is not just personal. It's not just individual. It's actually cosmic. It's global. And this gospel, as it impacts Daniel, it starts to impact the rest of the world. So believe it or not, after Daniel survives the lion's den, Cyrus, the formerly pagan king, guess what he does? He sends out an edict, and tell tell me if this rings a bell, to every tongue, tribe, and nation. Does that show up in Scripture? Saying this, the God of Daniel, or Yahweh, is the living God, and He has a dominion that will never end. Do you see this? Daniel's commitment to praying without ceasing leads to glory, not only by the pagan king, but also the glory extends to each and every nation. You want to know something else that's really cool? You you guys like Christmas? Okay. I I mean, think about like the nativity scene. Think about the Christmas scene. Think about baby Jesus in the manger. Who, who all is there? Who all is present at the manger? Who we got? Come on, list off the main characters. We got who? Okay, we got wise men. Who else we got? We got shepherds. We got Mary. We got Joseph. We got, maybe got some few animals mixed in there. Have you guys ever stopped and thought, where did the wise men come from? Where did the three magi come from? What part of the world? Does anybody remember? They came from the east. There we go, man. It's like Bible trivia in here. Okay, And more specifically, do you know what province they came from? They came from, anybody want to guess? They came from Persia. How in the world, okay, how in the world can men from the east, from Persia, this is pre-internet, this is pre-Twitter, this is pre-Fox News, how did they find out prophecies about the coming Savior? Anybody want to guess? It's because a thousand years ago, there was a man named Daniel who lived in exile. And he was faithful to meet with God but also point people to the everlasting God. Do you see this? Okay. His life, okay, because of his devotion to God, it changed his kingdom, okay, but it also changed the world. Wise men bowed down at the feet of baby Jesus. And this really points okay, and pushes back and corrects the American concept of what it means to be a Christian. So, for example... You know, my job is to work for Campus Outreach, and so one of the things I'm doing, left and right, every day in the cafeteria, I'm asking people, 
especially young students, what do you think it means to be a Christian? What is the good news of the gospel? Y'all ever asked that question of a friend? Maybe a CO student asked you that question at some point. And usually I get this response, that God loves me, or Jesus died on the cross for me, or Christ saved me. Now these are all true responses, but they're only partly true. They're actually incomplete, because the emphasis, and at least the American understanding of the gospel is what? God exists for who? For me. I'm the center of the story. And here's what we come to find out when we study scripture, is that yes, God loves me so that I can love other people. And Jesus sacrificed for me so that I would be a living sacrifice for the world. And God saved me, I have a friend who says this, with other people in mind. And this is what we're going to discuss this morning, is that we have received God's grace, but it actually comes with a responsibility and obligation to extend that grace, not only to others, but specifically to the nations. God has saved you with somebody else in mind. And so here's how we're going to do it this morning. We're going to look at the book of Romans, okay? And I know probably you Sanford students, you love to like roll your sleeves up and just study the book of Romans because there's big words like justification and predestination and glorification. But what's really interesting, a lot oftentimes when people talk about the book of Romans, they talk about theology and doctrine. Do you know what Romans really is? It's a missionary letter. It's a missionary letter. Okay? And Paul is motivating a church to engage not in an incomplete gospel, but a full gospel, a comprehensive gospel. So this is what we're going to talk about this morning. Our obligation, okay, to reach the unreached. And here's what I'm assuming, okay, is that everybody in this room is saying, I'm about the purpose of God. I, I know what it means to make disciples. I'm attempting to labor and evangelize on my campus. And so this is going to be 201. This is going to be, okay, that, that as we engage in the Great Commission, even as college students, we should have a bias or a tendency we should consider reaching the unreached. Okay, so read with me uh, in chapter 1. Let's go to the next slide. Okay, this is Romans 1.14. It says this. This is Paul speaking. I'm under obligation to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith and for faith, as it is written, okay, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, now here's the first word that I want you to pay attention to. The word is obligation. When you hear the word obligation, okay, what are some synonyms, what are some words that come to mind? What does it mean to be obligated to someone or something? What do y'all think? Okay, there's a duty. That's great. Okay, you're committed to it. Fantastic. Okay, have you ever been obligated to somebody? It's when they can say, you owe me. I deserve this. You got to come through here. So I'll give you a, a real life example. Okay, a lot of you probably carpooled to Shaco Springs. That means that one person drove, okay, their car with their gas and you got to hop in. Okay, so therefore you are obligated to what? Say, hey man, can I fill up your tank? Can I pitch in $5? Can I Venmo you some cash? Okay, everybody who's like driving is looking around like, yes. You know, amen, nudging you. You should write that down, okay? 
Okay, that, that's what it means to be obligated. It, it's not just, ah, oh, that's nice. That's above and beyond. It's, dude, you owe me. This is part of the deal. Okay? Here's another one. This is like a real-life example. Uh, have, you, have, you, have you, any of you have like ever helped somebody like move to a new apartment? Okay? So they call you up. Hey, man, I need a strong back. I got a heavy couch. I got a big refrigerator. You know, I got lots of clothes, whatever it may be. Uh, if you help somebody move, okay, they are obligated to what? Repay the favor at some point. That's just how it works. It's like, dude, I helped you. You helped me. That is an obligation. And do you see what Paul says? He says, if you understand the gospel, if you've received the grace of God, okay, it's not extra credit. It's not above and beyond. It's not just for the super serious CO Christians. It is our obligation. We owe it to the world to reach the unreached. Now let me just be clear. That just because it's an obligation does not mean Paul is doing this just white-knuckling it. and saying, dang it, I just got to do it. He doesn't have to do it. He wants to do it. Because in Romans 1.16, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. In the same way, it'd be like if we walked out into the parking lot and somebody was trying to crank their car and the engine just wouldn't turn over and you have jumper cables, you're what? You're obligated. I got what you need. But more than that, I want to help you out. So you can get back to your campus because I'm a good friend and I love to serve. If, if you have a cure for cancer or some sort of serious disease, sure, you're obligated not to keep it to yourself, but to pass it on. This is what Paul is saying. The gospel is the greatest news in the world because it's the only message that is actually the power of salvation. It's the message that we can be made right with God through Jesus Christ. And do you see what Paul is saying in the first chapter of this doctrinal letter? He's saying, whatever it takes, I am willing to do whatever it takes to bring the gospel to people who've never heard it. In fact, if you get the, to the end of the letter to Romans, Paul says this, I make it my ambition. He's saying, this is my purpose. This is my passion. I make it my ambition to preach Christ where he's never been named. Let I me mean, think about that for a moment. I mean, what, what, if, what if Paul went to your campus? He would almost say, bump Birmingham. I'm done with Troy. Send me somewhere else. I want to go to a place where there's no churches, where there's unreached. I don't want to just know the gospel. I want to spread the gospel specifically with people who've never hear, heard. The Sheik of Bangladesh, the Omani Arabs, the Zang of China. These are all people groups that we've never heard of but they contain over one million people who have never heard the gospel. And that might shock you. You might be thinking to yourself, well, Ben, are there really people in the year 2023, the internet age, the social media age, are there really people who haven't heard the gospel? I mean, you're telling me there's still parts of the world where they don't preach the gospel, or there's no churches, and they don't know the name of Jesus Christ? And the sad news is this. The answer is yes. The answer is yes. So who are the unreached people? Let's go to the next slide. Who are the unreached? Okay, think about this today. If, if we had a world map, uh, there are over 200 geopolitical nations in the world. You understand what I mean when I say geopolitical nation? I'm talking about the United States. You might call it America, right? Canada, India, Mexico. There's 200 nations just like that. 
But when the Bible talks about people groups, it oftentimes uses like different people groups that end in ite, okay? Jebusites, Canaanites, Midianites, Amorites. And these are people groups or tribes that share a culture and share a language. And by that definition, there's over 11,000 people groups in the world. You tracking with that? I'll give you one example. I live uh, right outside Atlanta on the west side in Carrollton. Uh, if you go one, uh, go, go one. Uh, this is a picture of Clarkston, Georgia. Is anybody from the Atlanta area? Okay. Has anybody been to Clarkston? You, you really want to raise your hand, okay? Do you love Clarkston? It's incredible, isn't it? Okay. Because what's so special and unique about Clarkston? It's a refugee camp. It's a refugee camp. It is actually the most diverse mile uh, in America. Okay, that's what it's known for. Okay, this is really amazing. Guys, this is Atlanta, Georgia. And believe it or not, you can take a vision trip here for a weekend. Did you go there for a week? Okay, you can go there for a week and you can actually serve refugees. Okay, and just in Clarkston, Georgia, there are 145 countries represented. Okay, and there are almost 800 people groups in this one mile. There's Nepalese and Cambodians and Iranians, and Somalis, and Burmese, and Bhutanese, and Sudanese, and Laotians. And most of these people groups are unreached. So what does it mean that a people group is unreached? It means that they don't have an indigenous church. They don't have a local church that can engage people with the gospel. Therefore, they need outside assistance. They need help. They need missionaries to serve them. Okay? Now, different missiologists define unreached in different ways. Some people would say it's a people group that is less than 2% Christian. But here's what you got to understand. Like, whatever your favorite, like, like, acronym for your Christian organization, like, there's no CO, okay? There's no Baptist Convention. There's no SBC. There's no PCA. Whatever your denomination, your organization, whatever your affiliation, there's no such thing. And most people who are born and raised in unreached people groups have never met a Christian. They've never met a believer. So they haven't heard the name of Jesus named and definitely even preached. And here's the problem. See, we tend to think the problem is their lostness. Well, they're just so lost and they're so far gone. Let me just say this. They're no more lost than your fraternity brother who doesn't know Jesus. They're as spiritually dead as your family member who hasn't trusted in Christ. The problem is not their lostness. The problem is they lack access to the gospel. So how many unreached people are in the world? Well, if you look at the global population, there's just south of 7 billion people. We already said this. There's about 11,000 different people groups. Nearly 2 billion, okay, 2 billion in the world are still unreached. It's about 6,500 people groups. That's about one-third of the world population. Let's go to the next slide. And most of them live in this area. You might have seen this before. This is called the 1040 window. It refers to the latitude and the longitude. And you can see this. It covers North Africa. It covers Southeast Asia, portions of India, the Middle East, and also China. An overwhelming majority of the world's unreached is in this area. And let me just say they're unreached for a reason. These are some of the hardest territories in the world to bring the gospel. Okay? Traveling is difficult. In fact, in most of these nations, it's illegal. It could be a capital offense 
to proselytize or evangelize and share the good news. So what's it like to be unreached? Basically, it's this. You don't know the truth about Jesus Christ. But on top of that, you don't know anybody who knows the truth of Jesus Christ. Let's get a little crowd participation right here. Um, Let's think about like different world religions. What what do you guys know about Confucius? Ooh, we got any philosophy majors in the house? What do I know about Confucius? Anything? China. China, there we go, okay. What did you say? Taoism, very similar. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, like Confucius, you might, uh, doesn't he have like a goatee? Doesn't he stroke it and say Confucius says, okay? So we got a few facts, a few little details. What, what do you all know about Joseph Smith? Anybody? Mormon. A lot. A lot, okay. <laughs> you from like Utah or? Yep. Are you really? Oh, no, no, I've just been there. Okay, you've been to Utah, okay. Founder of Mormonism, okay, anything else? We're going to exclude you just for a moment. You're a ringer. You know too much, okay? Okay, how about this? What do we know about Charles Ties Russell? You ever heard of him? He's actually the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay? So you see what I'm saying? I'm naming religious leaders. I'm naming people who initiated and founded major world religions. If you went to an unreached people group and we're all scratching our head and grasping just to find a few facts, a few details, if I went to an unreached part of the world and I said, who is Jesus? They'd have the same response. might have been a carpenter. I think he said, love your enemies. Maybe he died. Something about a resurrection. And the sad news is this. Unless something changes, most of these individuals are more than likely going to be born, live, and die without hearing the gospel. And Romans is extremely clear. Is that all people... Okay, because we're born, we are made in the image of God, we have a knowledge of God. This is what Romans 1 is all about. I don't think I have it on the slide. And Paul actually says that we all suppress the truth. This is what's called general revelation. Have you ever heard of this? Here's what general revelation means. Okay? Deep down in our heart of hearts, nobody is an honest atheist. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? First, God reveals himself through creation. Psalm 19 says, the heavens... The stars declare the glory of God. Meaning, okay, maybe last night at Shaco Springs, you took a little nature hike and you saw the stars. You saw the trees. You saw the beauty and you said, nature is beautiful. It's complex. It has design. And that says something about our God. It says something about our Creator. But more than that, there's actually internal evidence. Because we all have a conscience. We all have a heart. We all have a sense of right and wrong. You ever thought about that? Okay, that essentially every human civilization, every culture, or throughout all of history has basically agreed on the same set of, set, set of like moral rules. That it's wrong to murder. It's wrong to steal. Now where does that come from? If we have a law that's written on our heart, therefore we must have a lawmaker. And therefore it says something about who God is. God hates murder because he loves life. God hates stealing because he loves generosity. God hates infidelity and adultery because he loves marriage and monogamy. Do you see what I'm saying? All people, doesn't matter where you live, you can be in the 1040 window, we all have a basic knowledge of God as we look into creation and as we look at our heart. But Romans 1, according to Paul, says God is clearly perceived. 
we're without excuse. There's no honest atheist, but we've all rejected God. That's the natural state of man. And this can look different for different people. Let's go back like, oh no, it's right here. Okay, look at that. We got it. Way to go, Trent. Trent must have typed that up really quick. Okay, do you see this? We all suppress the truth. We're all without excuse. And Paul says this, I'm under obligation, do you remember this? To the Greeks, but also the barbarians. Now when you think about Greeks, you probably think about like old white dudes. Plato, Aristotle, flowing you know, togas, white hair, they're academic, they're philosophical. But Paul actually says I'm under obligation not just to the Greeks, but also to the barbarians. Do you know why they were called barbarians? Because nobody could understand the way they talk, okay? It was like going to a Jack's in Talladega, Alabama. <laughs> they couldn't understand what they were saying, and it sounded like this. Ba, 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 ba. So they called them ba, ba, barbarians. But they were crude. They were violent. They were rude. Okay? And Paul was saying they were all unreached. Some of you are super smart. Some of you are really crude. Being unreached looks different for different people. You go to West Africa. The unreached, they practice voodoo to please their evil spirits. You go to India, and they offer incense every day to idols that they've made with their own hands. You climb the mountains of Nepal, you would worship Buddha, and then you would send your firstborn to the monastery so that they could become a monk and attain Buddhahood. You go to Saudi Arabia, you pray and kneel on your prayer mat five times a day and recite incantations to a false god. You travel to China, and they've rejected the concept of God altogether. So brothers and sisters, God cares about the nations. God cares about every tribe, every tongue, and every language. And here's why. Have you ever stopped and thought about this? Okay. Here's why God cares about the, the nations. Okay. It's not because it's trending on social media. Like God's not like some woke, up-to-date God. Here's why God cares about the nations. is because diversity magnifies the glory of God. We were created to enjoy God and glorify Him forever. And more diversity brings more glory to God. Here's what I mean. Okay? How many of you love a good, love a good solo? Like I'm talking, you know, Amazing Grace, the Star Spangled Banner. I mean, the list goes on. Whitney Houston, okay, Chris Stapleton at the Super Bowl, am I right? I mean, there's something incredible about a solo. And even the best solo, guess what? It pales in comparison to a gospel choir. Because there's harmony. And and there's sopranos and altos and tenors and bass. Different voices uniting in one voice. And that's what God wants from all the nations, okay? So if God cares about the nations, so should we. God desires, He's creating a new heavens that will be marked by perfect unity, but also perfect diversity. So here might be the question you're wondering. Well, Ben, what what, what about these unreached people? Aren't there islands and remote places and tribes in the mountains where you have these innocent natives? The innocent, righteous islander who dies without hearing the gospel. What happens to them? It's a pretty good question. I get that from time to time. Do they go to heaven? Do they spend eternity with God? And the answer is yes. Absolutely. No question. But the problem is with the question. Because we assume 
that the native is innocent and the native is righteous. And the reality is the innocent guy does not exist. It's a biased question. See, brothers and sisters, there are no righteous natives in the world waiting for the gospel. There's only guilty people. There's only men and women who have rejected God. And this is why they need to hear the gospel. And let me just say this. I really believe when Paul is writing this, that he's writing this in tears. Because here's what I know. The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. So what do we do about it? How do we reach the unreached? I'm going to give you four ways that you can right here, right now as a college student, be about this business, not just making disciples, but actually reaching the unreached. Let's go to the next slide. First, you can go. First, you can go. Let me just say this. Read the book of Acts. Sending or going, it's not unnatural. It's not traumatic. It is normal. It is common. Can I just tell you what the whole book of Acts is about? You get these apostles, and they're just regular dudes who have been with Jesus. In fact, when people start like jonesing them and like ridiculing them, they're like, these guys are uneducated. They're ordinary. They couldn't get into Sanford. But they have confidence because they've been with Jesus. And guess what these apostles start doing? They show up to a new city. They preach. People are saved. Disciples are made. And they send people out again. Rinse and repeat. That is the pattern of the early church. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I sent you. This is what it means to be an apostle. We are sent ones. And this is really what Campus Outreach desires. We're not necessarily a ministry, an organization that occasionally sends. We are a sending ministry. And let me just tell you this, okay? Because of my role in Campus Outreach, like I, I, I get the emails first. I get the phone calls first. And you know what people are asking me? Send me laborers. Send me men. I need graduates. I need young men. I need young women okay, who will move here and just share the gospel. Guess what people aren't asking me for? They don't want money. They don't want funds. They don't want advice. They don't need help and strategy. We need laborers. Because Matthew 9.35, it was true back then and it's true today. We are called to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest because the harvest is plentiful, but the what? The laborers are few. So let me just say this. Only because this is a leader's retreat. Okay, and I don't know you all, but I think everybody in this room should consider going overseas for at least two years after you graduate. Okay? I don't think I can put it any more straightforward, but everybody in this room, okay, should be willing to stay, but ready to go to the nations for at least two years. Okay? And let me just say this. Right now you're sitting here and you're like, you might be a little fired up. You're on the edge of your seat. You're ready to go. You're motivated. But, but what about this? And I got dreams. Or I got career aspirations. And what would my parents think? And I got college debt. Let me just say this. Whatever comes to mind next after I challenged you or invited you to reach the unreached, that more than likely might be the most significant idol in your life. Am I right? Okay. Everybody in this room is like, it's a great idea, but somebody else should go. Because I got college debt. 
or because I'm pre-med or because I got a family business to take over or because my parents would be really disappointed or because I'm dating a guy or I'm dating a girl or because I just love America and sweet tea and bologna biscuits from Jack's and they don't have that in Sri Lanka. And let me just say this, whatever it is, okay, like you, you might agree with this conceptually or theoretically, but whatever is holding you back from saying, I'm into this, I'm willing to go, more than likely that is the most significant idol in your life. It's competing with Jesus, okay, for worship, okay, and you got to deal with it. You got to deal with it, okay? So here's what I'm saying. I, I'm not saying that everybody in this room should be a missionary, but everyone in this room should be willing to go and hold their future with an open hand, okay? Let me just mention two more things. Two more things. See, there, there's, there's a couple myths in America that tend to prevent people from going overseas. And the first is this, okay? Uh, the first is this, uh, this whole idea or misconception of falling behind, okay? Do you guys feel this? So you got your whole life planned out, and you're like, I got to get this internship, then I got to get into this program, and then I can get this job so that I can you know, have my next 10, 20, 30 years planned out. And if I miss one of these steps, then eventually I'll be homeless and single for the rest of my life. So I got to take the internship. I, I, I got to get, get in with the accounting firm right away because this is my plan. Do you see what I'm saying? And do you know this? Okay? And, and this is actually coming from a secular source. There's a book that recently came out um, that, that's called Range. Okay? And the idea is... That so, and he pushes back um, against this misconception of just being a specialist. And he says, actually, the path to success is not a direct line. He says it's more like climbing a mountain. There are switchbacks. You go left and right, and you switch careers, vocations, uh, and, and different job experiences. And he actually looks at some of the most successful CEOs, leaders, politicians in our world, and they all had a variety of experience. And I would just say this, okay? If you give up, Two years of your life to be on mission for God, you will not view it as a waste. And here's what you'll come to find out. You will be more prepared for your career than if you did it. Because here's what you're going to learn. How to speak a new language. How to initiate to strangers. How to lead and think for other people. How to communicate with confidence. Do you think those things are transferable to other careers? You better believe it. Okay? So guys, you can become a great doctor, a great lawyer, a great teacher, not in spite of doing missions, but through doing missions. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay. And here's probably the other thing that some of you are realizing. Okay. Have you ever stopped and paused and said, what, what is God's will for my life? And we asked this question last night. But oftentimes people rush into it and they never examine their assumptions. And a lot of people that I talk to, they have some vision, and maybe it came from their parents, or a guidance counselor, or a coach, and somebody said, you'd be good at this, or you should consider this, or you can make a lot of money doing this. And very often, the vision that we're operating under, it's not God's vision, it's our own, and we're hoping that God can fit in it. And here's what we're calling you today. We're saying, look, this is God's story. This is what He's writing. This is what he's doing. Instead of saying, God, here's my life. Will you bless it? Will you fit into it? I'll give you just a portion. Instead, a better question is, how do I fit into God's story? 
So whose story are you living out of? Okay? Is it the American story, just make money, retire early? Is it your parents' vision, or is it God's vision? It's a God's story. So first off, we should all consider going. We should all consider going. But second, we can all send. Like some of us are going to go. Most of us are going to stay long term. But we should all, every single one of us, should feel the weight of the unreached. So that means when I start making money, I sacrifice my money, my time, my friendships, my responsibility for the nations. So believe it or not, there are men and women who've graduated from your university who are reaching the unreached. Like I can give you examples of Troy and Samford and UAB graduates who are in the 1040 window who are reaching the unreached. At the very least, we can pray for them. At the very least, we can give $10. What did you say? That's a Chipotle bowl. $10 a month. We can find ways to send people to go reach the lost. Number three, we can all pray. Let, let me just mention a couple things. We talked about praying without ceasing yesterday, but at least a portion of your student prayer time should be about the lost. So I'm praying by name for my sorority sisters. I'm praying by name for my teammates. I'm praying by name for people in my major who don't know Jesus, but I'm also praying by name for specific tongue, tribes, and nations that haven't been reached with the gospel. You can find this on Operation World. Write that down. The Joshua Project. Write that down. There are apps. There's even an unreached people of the day. Talk about a really like specific Gen Z way of like praying for the world. Okay, You get a notification every day to pray for the unreached. And then here's the final one. Okay, You can welcome. You can welcome. Did you know that there are actually international students on your campus at UAB? I'm sure you're aware of this, right? Uh, most of these students, we don't have the picture, come from that part of the world. You ever considered that? Okay, so I live in like a redneck town in Georgia, and I am shocked, but we have 200 international students on our campus. And so what do we do in the redneck town of Carrollton, Georgia? Okay, we had a bonfire, we had s'mores, okay, and our students really didn't think it through. Uh, They served a bunch of pulled pork. When you're from that part of the world, you're not really like prone to eat pork, but there was plenty of coleslaw and potato chips, so it all worked out. Okay, we took them on hayrides, but... But I was meeting people, interacting, with, and I met a guy from Lebanon, okay, closed country. I met a young lady. I went to shake her hand because I'm like, you know, just, just some like, you know, showing some southern hospitality, and she stepped back completely. You want to know why? Because she said, I'm from a nation in Africa, and I practice Islam, and I am told never to touch a man's hand unless it's my father or my soon-to-be husband. Okay? And she's on my campus, and God's brought her here to get an education, to get a degree, but maybe, but maybe to hear the gospel and bring it back with her. So did you know this? The number one experience that an international student wants when they travel abroad or come to the States, anybody want to guess what it is? They want to eat and have a meal in the home of a real-life American. That's it. That's why they packed up. That's why they paid the money. They want the education, but they want the American experience. And here's the sad thing. 80% of international students go home without ever stepping foot in the home of an American. And a dorm room counts. Guys, what what, what if you were just to take 10% of your life, develop one relationship, build one friendship 
with the Asian kid who sits in your accounting class, okay? With, with the person who speaks broken English, you know, who's sitting alone in the cafeteria. What if you were just to befriend one international on your campus? You could reach the nations. So this is it. Why, why, was, why must we go reach the unreached? And, and this is the bad news, and we got to feel this. Because there's 2 billion individuals on our earth who know that God is real, who know that there's a creator. They're also aware of their lostness, and that's it. Period. And that can't be tolerable. But here's the good news. The gospel of God is powerful enough to save anyone for heaven. And we have a part to play. Let me give you one example of a college student who took on that role, embraced this mission, and then we'll wrap it up. Let's go to the next slide. I'm going to tell you a quick story about a man named C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd. C.T. was a college student and cricketer at Cambridge University. Now, that might not seem like a big deal, but, you know, he was very British. He had three brothers. There was E.K., G.B., and C.T., and they were balling cricket players, okay? And cricket, you know, in the 1800s would be like the NFL or the NBA in America today. This guy was a celebrity. He was a phenom. Okay? He was like the LeBron James of his time. And so he attends Cambridge, and his life is consumed with his sport. In fact, if you were to say to CT, hey, do you want to serve overseas? Do you want to be on mission? He would say what? Now, I, I got professional cricket to play. Okay? I'm going to make bank. I'm going to be famous. And then God changed his life when he was a college student. And by the very end of his life, he existed to glorify God and extend his kingdom. So he has a radical conversion during college, and he says this. He said, I had as much love for cricket as any man could have. But then the Lord Jesus came into my heart, and I found something infinitely better than cricket. My heart was no longer in the game. I wanted to win souls for the Lord. Do you see this? And this is what God will do. He will redirect your passion. He will transform your drive. When CT was a college freshman, he would say this. I exist to win games. But when he graduated, he said, I exist to win souls. And so just think, would you allow God to redirect your passion, your vision, your 40-year plan, your organizational ability, your academic skill, your communication ability? Allow God to use those gifts for his mission. Okay? And so CT said this. He said, I'm going to play cricket until ordination. Meaning this. The moment he graduates, he was moving overseas. He was ordained into full-time ministry. And, and the reason is, is he read a passage in Revelations 5, where it says this in Revelations 5, that, that by the blood of Jesus, he ransomed people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And while C.T. was having his little morning devotional, he was doing the here method. No idea. In the very margin of his Bible, he wrote three places, three locations, three countries in the 1040 window. He wrote China, India, Africa. So in 1885, with his degree, he recruits six of his teammates. They become known as the Cambridge Seven. And CT actually was not a very good speaker. He wasn't eloquent. He wasn't articulate. But he had a burning devotion for Jesus. And he went from campus to campus recruiting and mobilizing college students to reach the unreached. 
After one year of mobilizing in 1885, he joins another missionary named Hudson Taylor in China. Now, right before that, okay, Hudson Taylor came from a very wealthy family. Some of you might feel like family pressure. I got this business. I got this tradition. My family expects this, me to move back to my hometown. Um, Hudson Taylor gave away his entire fortune before he set sail for China. It was $29,000 at the time. It was millions today. And on the boat to China, he meets Bay. Okay? He meets a young lady, another Brit, and her name is Priscilla. Okay? Her name was Priscilla. And they were actually going to separate cities in China. And so they had this, you know, fortuitous moment where they're like, you know, just, 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 you know, he's like, hey, you know, I play cricket. You know, I love Jesus. They hit it off, you know, the little beach project romance. The spark is there. And then they go their separate ways. They don't text. They don't DM. They write letters to each other. And this is how Hudson Taylor woos his future bride. He says this. He says, Priscilla, if you marry me, it won't be an easy life. A life of ease I wish I could offer to you, but I offer you one of toil and hardship. You want to talk about romantic? He says, if I didn't know you were a woman of God, I wouldn't even dream of asking you this. I'm asking you to be a fellow soldier in his army, to live a life of faith, a fighting life, remembering that there is no abiding city. We're exiles. There's no certain dwelling place, but only a home eternal in the Father's house above. How do you think Priscilla responds? I don't want to be your soldier. Okay, I want to be your soulmate. No, she says, I'll marry you. They get married. They have five daughters in China. And, and, and they build out the China Inland Mission. Okay? Hudson Taylor's, his health starts to decline. He has severe asthma. And they actually have to return home. Okay? In the meantime, they start, okay, they go to China. Where do they go next? Then they go to India. They start a missions agency in India. And they start it from his bed. This becomes the prayer center. Unceasing. Consistent, earnest prayer. Priscilla's sending out pamphlets. They're raising money. And as they get to the end of their life, they're in their 50s and their 60s, they've still got one more location. China, India, Africa. They still have a heart to build a mission in Central Africa. So at the age of 60, with severe asthma, at a time when most people would say, would say what to Hudson? Take it easy. Relax. Retire. You've reached two nations, two provinces. Just relax and rest. Hudson Taylor and his wife and 50 other missionaries, they called themselves Christ Etceteras. Meaning this, we're nobodies. We're just Etceteras. We're nameless, we're faceless, but we have a mission. It's to build the kingdom in Central Africa. Do you know this? A majority of the people on this boat were actually single women. And they were going to tribes where they would actually split out. And so often we see time and time again, the work of carrying the gospel to the nations, it happens through men and especially through women. Okay, We've been reading the book of Romans, the letter of Romans. It was hand-delivered by who? By Phoebe. You see this? Okay, You young ladies, don't sit around waiting for a man. Get busy. Join the mission of God. Band together. And this was Hudson's desire. They took the gospel to, to, to Central Africa, okay? And this might have been the most unreached place on the globe. 
These are people who had never seen a book. These are people who had no concept of holiness or heaven or eternity. These are tribes who had never heard of God, but also a God who loves them and cares for this. And on top of this, anybody, you want to guess this? This is the kicker. They were cannibals. They were cannibals. In fact, one of the first tribes that Hudson Taylor meets, the, the, the cannibal sort of chief comes to, comes to Hudson Taylor and he says this. He says, get on with your work. But he says, remember this. He says, I've eaten better men than you. Okay? Now, I, hey, I know it's so hard to do sorority ministry. Okay? I know it's so hard to get a raised eyebrow in your dorm. And I know it's awkward to bring up Jesus. Okay? Hudson Taylor is sharing the gospel with cannibals. Okay? And here's the amazing thing. Okay? The worst cannibal, this chief, this ringleader, he actually comes to know Jesus. Okay? This guy was like the quarterback, the SGA president. He trusts in Jesus and he starts to share the gospel. And 50 native Africans in his tribe come to faith. Okay, let's go to the next slide. That's Cricketeer Hudson Taylor. Okay, let's go to the next slide. And for the, last, for, for, for the remaining 10 years of Hudson Taylor's life, his asthma gets more severe. And he, all he devotes his life to is translating scripture into their native tongue. He finally dies. And the amazing thing is all these tribes come together. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and they're united, okay? They celebrate, they honor the death of Hudson Taylor, and they glorify Jesus. This is how Hudson Taylor want to finish. Go back one, go back one. He says this, Some want to live within the sound of church bells, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Let me just say this. So we'll wrap it up. We are plan A. There's no plan B. We must go to the unreached. And we've received the grace of God. But God gives us that grace for a goal that we would reach the nations. He blesses us with mercy that, so that we can embrace His mission. We've got to send la- laborers to the unreached. In Revelations 5.9, this is the verse that motivated Hudson Taylor, and it says this, that Jesus was slain, and by his blood, he ransomed people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You know that word ransom. It means to purchase. It means to trade. It means to exchange. And here's what this verse is saying, is that Jesus has already purchased men and women in the unreached people groups. He's paid the price. And he paid the price with his blood by dying on the cross. Jesus has already ransomed men and women from all 6,500 unreached people groups. But what Jesus has done for the nations must be made known to the nations. So this is why we do it. We do it because we're inspired by Hudson Taylor. But Hudson Taylor lived a yard near hell. But ultimately what's going to drive us, inspire us, motivate us, is Jesus didn't get near hell. He didn't just taste hell. He experienced hell on the cross. That's why we must sin. That's why we must go. This is why Jesus died for us. First Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 5 says that Jesus died for us so we would no longer live for ourselves. Brothers and sisters, this is what we've been saved from. 
We're not only saved from our sin, saved from unrighteousness, but we're saved from living for ourselves. We're saved from living for a really small story. So yes, we're redeemed. We are ransomed. We have been bought with a price. But now we're invited. This is the invitation to live for something greater. And isn't this what you want? To have a small part in a big story. That's what Hudson Taylor was about. You can be a part of something big. You can make your life count. These are some of the final words that Hudson Taylor left us with. He says this. Let's go one more. He says, only one life. Only one life will soon be passed, but what is done for Christ will last. Is that the type of life you want to live? Is that how you want to be remembered? Okay. This is the story that God's inviting you to.